Today's episode of Binge Mode Weekly on the Ringer Podcast Network was brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals in some of our biggest cities, like New York and Los Angeles. And they're launching initiatives across America to deliver hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us. And you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate. We're trying to raise $250,000. And if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen, and it's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. My lords and ladies, I suppose this is the most important moment of our lives. What we decide today will reverberate through the annals of history. I stand before you as one of the senior lords in the country. A veteran of two wars. I tell you that binge mode contains adult content. Spoilers. And Uncle. Understa- Please sit. And now, binge mode. High in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts. The ones she had lost and the ones she had found and the ones who had loved her the most. The ones who'd been gone for so very long. She couldn't remember the names. They spun her around on the damp old stones. Spun away all her sorrow and pain. And she never wanted to leave. Never wanted to leave. Never wanted to leave never wanted to leave never wanted to leave never And welcome to Binge Mode Game of Thrones. That feels right. Hearing that really feels right. Proudly, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor in chief of TheRinger.com. Oh! What a great website. It's really something. Joining me today, now that he's set off to find what's west of Westeros, it's Ringer Senior Creative, your maester, Jason Concepcion. It turns out it's a Taco Bell. That's what's out there. 
Mal, why do you think I came all this way? If not for another special quarantine edition of Bingebone Weekly, where as we social distance, we'll be coming to you once a week to cover a series of rotating topics, revisiting some of our past favorites and diving into some news stories as well, while also getting to work on the next full Bingebone project. More info on that front coming soon. Please subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or just wherever you get them. And please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings or we will let Braun manage your money. Question one, would you like to invest in a brothel? No. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to share your My Plan slash 2020 Game of Thrones memes. Also, are you looking to spice up your work-from-home wardrobe before zooming into your next small council meeting? Then head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Last time on Binge Mode Weekly, we explored the gorgeous concluding arc of Star Wars The Clone Wars. And today, we are diving deep, deep back into the narrow sea, our darling sparrows, because it's Game of Thrones week here at The Ringer. We're talking about all sorts of Game of Thrones matters to mark the one year period since the season eight and series finale. And we thought, what better way to mark that passage of time, reflect on the story, our fandom, than by hearing from all of you. As always, of course, spoiler warning, we will be taking all of Game of Thrones and the wider A Song of Ice and Fire universe into account. So mount your horse, find your dire wolf, and protect ghost because it's time to head back beyond the wall for an All Thrones edition of Ask the Underscore. Number one, Sarah asks, it's been one year since the finale. Tell me more. Do you all feel any differently about it now or about the series as a whole? <sighs> what a question. Starting what with a, a doozy. It is, it's really the question. Getting right into our feelings right away. Broadly, I find that when I reflect back on the way the show ended and I think about specific character arcs, specific plot points, specific choices in the story, the things that bothered me then still do. But we should say up top that the point of this podcast is not just to spend another 90 minutes talking about how mad we are. The point is ultimately to celebrate a thing that we loved. And that is predominantly what I find myself thinking about now when I reflect back on the Game of Thrones experience. My feelings of true and immense gratitude for the entire endeavor and all of the things that having Game, Game of Thrones in my life has meant to me. The show, the books, my friendship with you, this beautiful podcast where we get to talk about how much stories mean to us and how they unite people and bring them together. And while it still pains me that the back half of season eight compromised the foundation of that for a lot of people who take that really seriously. I am at the point with it now where I am, again, while not able to ignore those things and at least step back from them, look at the picture as a whole, and think more on the fond memories, the characters who have embedded themselves so deeply in my heart and soul that they will never, ever leave... And I try to look forward, look forward to the spinoffs, look forward to hopefully getting Winds of Winter from George or from you when you write it for him after penning your 
<laughs> outstanding point of view chapter this week in your brand Thank one you year later that. essay. It was remarkable stuff. Can't wait for more from the Night of Lumber. <laughs> I'm available. <laughs> so that's that's sort of where I am with it. You know, certainly still hung up on a few things which we're going to talk about today, but broadly filled with a real sense of undying gratitude for mm-hmm. having the story in my life and getting to share it with you and everyone else. What about you? I feel very similarly. I think I was, you know, I've been struck uh, in the kind of Twitter responses to the piece I wrote, just like how pained people are and have been. And were really, uh, you know, yeah. the the real emotional hurt that that they felt at the ending of it. Um, I think for me, certainly time has, has dulled that pain. I think just more generally zooming out, I think. I think we've learned a lot about the importance of endings, and I don't mean Mm -hmm. to say that in any kind of like trite way. I I mean that sincerely and in a very real way, just about properties and IP and stories, Mm -hmm. the importance of really landing it. Should another Game of Thrones type story come around, one that is adapted from books or comes from some other source or maybe uh, arises naturally on, on television? I think whoever owns that story will understand that in order for that well to keep giving water, got to nail that ending. Mm -hmm. Listen, I don't know. Making TV is hard, but I think if I think if HBO could go back and do it again, they'd say, "Okay, whatever the costs, whatever it means, Dan and Dave, if you can't commit to like another five episodes, that's fine. We'll we'll get somebody to pinch hit. And I know maybe you don't want that, but I think we have to do that. And why do you have to do that? Because of what we've seen. Right. You have to be able to go back to that well for the spinoffs and that excitement needs to be there. Now, now maybe I, I do hold out a lot of hope that the that the um that the spin-offs we talk we'll talk more about them later. Yes, um, we will. are gonna build that excitement back up. But I do mm-hmm. think that what we're seeing is you have to hit that ending if this is a story that you intend or if this is a world that you intend to visit again because this IP is not immortal. It's not a thing that people will just love unconditionally. You have to land it for them or else they're not going to want to come back or they're going to be so hurt that it's going to take a lot to lure them back. And so I think that's what we've learned is the, is the importance of really hitting an ending. That's a great point, and it's a almost perfect moment in time to be making that point because not only did Tuesday, May 19th, mark the one-year anniversary since the series finale of Thrones, but we are, of course, mere months removed from the Rise of Skywalker experience, the conclusion of that part of the Star Wars journey where sticking the ending or failing to stick the landing was obviously a huge part of the discussion. And interestingly... We're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the Lost finale, which is kind of the one of the one of the uh, proto shows for discussing this phenomenon of what happens and what you risk losing if you let people down at the end. Now, I ride for the Lost finale, as you know, but I also recognize that I am in the extreme minority in that sense. When we were collecting questions for this mailbag. We got a lot of questions from people in this mold. You know, how are you feeling about things generally a year later? But we got a lot of questions that were a little more pointed than that, that basically were some version of, 
Have you ever seen anything fade from the public consciousness as quickly as Game of Thrones? Avatar. (laughs) Are you worried that the way the show ended means that people will not want to revisit it? Would you recommend Game of Thrones to people who have never seen it before based on how it ended? And I was so bummed out reading those questions because if that is the predominant feeling for people, that's like a tragedy because Game of Thrones was an incredibly special thing that we all got to share together. And I, to be clear, I think that however any individual person feels about it is completely up to them. And I I don't necessarily expect everybody to agree with each other. I think we've spent enough time on the internet to know that's not possible when stories of this scale are concerned. I also think it's worth reiterating something that I know we both believe, which is while certainly there is a corner of the internet where the debate is just toxic and noxious no matter what for a different and broad swath of the game of thrones viewing public the fact that they were let down comes from a place of love comes from a place of really really being invested deeply and fully in the story and that's that's always how we approach it and still do anything that we're still hung up on anything that we will be hung up on for the rest of our lives until maybe we get the book from George and then perhaps also still then because we'll always be comparing it to that. It comes from thinking about these characters as though they are real people in our lives, our friends, our family, real living, breathing, vibrant beings who we have spent years and years and years of our lives getting to know, suffering with, falling in love with, learning from. The impact of that will will never leave you. And that is ultimately, even if it hurts a little bit, I think a, a great gift. To, to briefly talk about those other two properties, Lost, obviously, it ended and it ended and we're not going back to the Lost universe in any kind of meaningful fashion. But we have Again, to go back. <laughs> we have to go. We got to go back. <laughs> Star Wars, while the rise of Skywalker, you know, for many was a disappointment, myself included, Clone Wars and Rebels have been kind of the standard bearer for Star Wars storytelling for a while. For a while, really the best Star Wars storytelling is happening on television. So that that blunted the pain a little bit. With Game of Thrones, I hold out hope that wins will come out. I really do think it will. I think that there's, I think we won't get spring. Not written by George, certainly. And, oh, God. and, and the show is over. So there is, there is real, the pain is, is quite different in the sense that this was the ending, perhaps. The real ending, the only ending that we will get, potentially, and so that there is right. it, that exacerbates and compounds absolutely, yeah. and I, and we and we shouldn't minimize the real emotional pain that people felt. Still do trying to be positive. It's hard. <laughs> Let's lean into a little thought experiment here for our next question. That'll help us have some fun here and be celebratory yeah. and weird. Number two comes from Tiago, who from the Game of Thrones universe, would you guys do a The Last Dance type of documentary about 20 years from now? (laughs) This is a crossover of some of our most fervent passions, Jay. Absolutely. So just to kind of specify, I am interpreting this as a Last Dance type documentary about a real person, about Mm -hmm. a real world, as if they really exist. Okay. So, number one, I'm going to go with Bran, the last green seer. Love it. Listen, I think 
I, like yourself, Mal, and like many of uh, uh, those who are listening, would just kind of like to know more about Let what's going on with Bran, how, yeah. you know, what he sees, how he perceives the world, how his how his powers work, what he's what the training was like when he was under the tree far north of the wall. And what it is like generally to be kind of the last of his kind and the last real greenseer and to be the king of Westeros. I think that would be fascinating. What happens if in the very first interview session, he just says, I'm going to go now and that's it. No more, no more tape. <laughs> just, I mean, well, that would be nine blank hours from there. <laughs> well, that would be very tough, but I think we'd have to then lean on footage from, you know, those that knew him. Certainly we could get Tyrion. You know, Tyrion, what was that conversation uh, about? What happened in that conversation? So we at least get that kind of stuff. Yeah. I would love to hand Bran iPads of people <laughs> of like, talking about him. Yeah. Mira checking in. <laughs> checking in. Still channeling her rage. He died in the yeah, that cave that day. <laughs> Here's what Mira didn't understand. So next I would go Daenerys. Okay. Not the last Targaryen, yeah. obviously, but the last Targaryen to rule something. Just a fascinating life, a, a life that I think is, is in many ways inspiring. You know, a fugitive from the moment that she was born, threatened at every second, at every turn yep. by the people closest to her. Um, and from a very young age, having to having no choice but to gamble with her life in order to move forward, to never be able to move backwards, to never be able to opt out of this reality of either I go forward and take agency and take control and rule, or I am killed. There's no other option for her. There was no other path. And obviously the way she ended is, is, is tragic and speaks to the corrosive effects of total power. But a fascinating subject nonetheless. Would Danny's Nike contract Air Jordan one moment be when she received the dragon eggs from Illyrio? Absolutely. You know, the, the, the ultimate calculus of the finances and power at play there could not have been understood at the time. And honestly, I can't wait to get Illyrio postmortem on <laughs> camera. Man. And just be like, hey, man, did you know how much one those were worth? Just one of them. You could buy a ship with one of them. Two, do you have any inkling that they might possibly hatch, thus tilting the balance of power, not just in Westeros, but across the world? Did you have any idea that you were just kind of like handing those away? Talk to me, man. What happened there? I think we get a lot of blank stares. Just an ab one of the most lopsided trades ever in history. Forget the hardened trade. Bill would be talking <laughs> about the three dragon eggs for a smile, basically, trade forever. Shuts down every trade machine. There's no return where you net out with her airness that could have been fair from no. the start. Just none at all. Absolutely. Impossible to make a fair trade with those. Not even one of those is, is possible to have a fair trade with. I guess if you would say, okay, here's one a dragon egg, give me an army, but still. Okay, next. Uh, Tyrion mm -hmm. Lannister. A rich text. Rich text, master strategist, lover of wine, women, and song, appreciator <laughs> of high and low culture, one of the most well-traveled people 
in our story, has seen a lot of things. One of the most well-studied people, understands the history of his continent, killed his father on the shitter. Just the, the amount of things that you could talk to him about, you know, mm-hmm. the last hand, I guess you would call, you know, like what is, I, I guess that's what we title it, has been a hand to Joffrey Baratheon, Daenerys Stormborn, hand to Bran the Broken. Pretty amazing run there for my guy. I'd love to hear more about it. I think you could also call it the last hand job and make it about how Tyrion completely lost his ability to make good strategic decisions once he stopped having sex. Throw that out there. I can't wait for him to talk on it. I, I think the buildup just affected the, the the blood flow to his brain in ways that that Strongly none of agree. us could have predicted. <laughs> Next, Jon Snow slash Aegon Targaryen. What a life for my guy. Who knew that the life of one infant child could have affected so many things. Um, That secret was so impactful and really devastating to many, many, many lives and the history of the continent in ways Mm -hmm. that no one could have predicted. We never really get his feelings on it. We see him brooding. Boy, do we. (laughs) We get a few kind of very brusque and dismissive comments but we don't really ever get to explore that with him. You know, what, what did he feel when he found that out? What did he feel when he thought back to that moment with Ned mm-hmm. at the top of the King's Road when Ned promised that they would speak on this when he returned? What does it feel like to know that you are part of this family that was ostensibly the mortal enemy of your family? would love to know about that. And then obviously his life beyond the wall is fascinating. What's going on? What are you? What Absolutely. is he doing? Is he the leader of the wildlings? Is he just trying to be an anonymous wildling? Like, what's what, your theory? What is his life like now? I think he tries to just fade away. I don't think he tries to lead them in any meaningful fashion. Maybe that gets foisted upon him, and people look to him as as someone who they can turn to in times of crisis. But I think that he takes advantage of the natural independence of the free folk to just kind of live an everyman life. And I think that's what he would want to do. The old Dumbledore, Newt Scamander, Harry Potter equation, right? The ones who are best suited to ruling are the ones who don't seek it. I believe that John, as Tormund told him, is of the true North and that's where he belongs. And that's the only place he can possibly find something resembling peace out there roaming free with ghosts, hopefully finding a new water feature in which to make passionate love to the woman who has captured his heart. We know that John is only capable of copulating in front of or on water of some sort. I think that you're right, and the innate leadership that others grasp onto in John makes his future as the king beyond the wall and his connection with with Mance Raider, a former king beyond the wall of a very different stripe, of course. Almost too tantalizing a prospect to to not think about when assessing John's future. In terms of your doc on John, I am just delighted for the opening credit sequence. You know, thinking of the MJ version for the Last Dance, you getting you getting the the head the, the prominent I quit headline. You know, the newspaper clipping. I can just in place of that so easily see. I looked into his eyes. For the John yeah. Doc, it's perfect. I looked into his eyes. <laughs> God. John, did you look into his eyes? I haven't heard about that. 
Did you look into his eyes? I saw you looking at her gentle heart. <laughs> I was just thinking of the gentle heart thing. <laughs> Varys, I think, would be fascinating. You know, served the Mad King, served Robert, served Joffrey, served Tommen. Then later served Daenerys. So just like a, a wide breadth of experience with different rulers. And then, of course, like a real rags to riches story, which we don't get a lot of in this world. It's very, you know, upward mobility is really not a thing in Westeros, Essos, or anywhere else in this world, but he managed to do it. He he managed to work himself up from the streets um, as someone who was horribly mutilated by a blood sorcerer into one of the most powerful and influential figures in Westeros. Certainly someone who uh, was the holder of a lot of secrets. I'd love to see that tea get spilled. Would you interview the voice in the flames? Yeah, I'd want to know. I'd want to know what was said. We don't know. Yeah, what, I think you'd what, have what to. Happened? What happened? You know what who we else you'd, you'd have to get for your Varistock? You'd have to get Kimvara, Flame of Truth. Oh my God. The, the moment between them was just so crackling. We need more of that energy. I have a, a logistical question for you very quickly. Sure. Bran, Tyrion, John, alive if not necessarily well. Danny, Varys, unfortunately, no longer on this mortal coil. Are you conducting your documentaries on Danny and Varys in an alternate reality in which you have been interviewing them and collecting footage while they lived, you know, before they die? Mm. Are they posthumously present in the piece or is it, a, is it a, a, some sort of different timeline where they're still with us? No, what we do is we hook up Bran to some kind of capture card. And we get the stuff from right yeah. there as if it's happening. We just travel back and we hook Bran up to Black an Mirror. Elgato HD60 cap card, plug that into our hard drive, and we just get all the stuff in first person as it happened. It'll be amazing. Incredible. Take advantage of this guy. I love it. This is what great. What about you? One idea that taps into basically all of your individual docs, which I would I would love to see separate docs, frankly. You know, what what does quarantine made us realize? We need we need more of these stories in, in our lives. I thirst for them all. I was thinking of a doc called The Last Night, a play, of course, on mm. The Long Night and The Last Dance. I initially was thinking of calling it The Last Watch, and then I remember, Jason, that's an actual documentary about the Game of Thrones final season that exists. Great stuff. <laughs> so in The Last Night, Season eight would be, of course, the 97, 98 season, the run to the final title. The Battle of Winterfell is basically the Pacer series. The Siege of King's Landing is the Jazz series. John's Exile is Jordan's second retirement. Wow. My key subjects include obviously Danny and John. Goes without saying. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to hope that people have been collecting the tape on Danny the whole time, and that I have enough material to stitch together here. Bran, Tyrion, Varys, Sansa, Arya, and of course Sam, the author of Westerosi history himself, has to be there. Key figures. I need the Night King in this doc. I think to really make it hum. Does the Last Dance satisfy all of us quite as fully as it did if we don't have? The tantalizing shit talk sound bites from Isaiah Thomas, from Reggie Miller. You know, you need the Night King in there, you I think. You need that. You have to have it. I'm aware that he would just glare at us silently. I, 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 <laughs> I acknowledge that. I concede the point, but I still think it's important. I'd love to ask him, were you overconfident? 
<laughs> Did you take the threat of Valerian Steel seriously? Should you have maybe not strolled mm-hmm. towards the gods' wooden? Should you have maybe picked it? You know, you see your opportunity. I don't know. I would run if you wait 10,000 years, 6,000 years, whatever it was to get in there and kill the green seer. Put some pep in your step, my guy. Just because the scene is going to be presented to the viewers in slow motion doesn't mean you need to be moving in slow motion. Night Give me King. some hustle, Jesus. Act like you want it. And, you know, Jay, you you raised a, an interesting point right off the top, which was that you are treating the fictional characters, of course, as real figures, focusing on them. I'm going to use my subtle knife here and, and, and move between worlds in my doc. Mm. I'm going to focus Whoa. on the fictional characters, as I just said, but I also... I need my Jerry Krause figure. I need Uh-oh. the figure who built it and then blew it all up. I need Benny Offenweiss. Well, listen, like if we're, if we're being like dead ass serious, I actually think like a Game of Thrones beginning to end to end to the really the end and the decision to end it in, in the manner that That'd it was. Be incredible. That is a fascinating story. And I think one that like any film studio or TV studio or media outlet would be very interested in learning the lessons from. Agree. <laughs> Strong agree. <laughs> one day. Number three, Olivia Hughes, what are your hopes for the House of the Dragon adaption on HBO based on Fire and Blood? Boom. Okay. I think we have very similar, we have very similar feelings, I think, about this. Yeah. In a big picture sense, my primary hope is, is a macro one a spiritual one. It's that the show is good and restores yeah. fans' faith in Game of Thrones as a proposition on television. I think HBO mm-hmm. wants that as well. Yeah, I think we're all probably united in that wish. That the monoculture that sprung up around Thrones can stitch itself back together like Barrick animated anew by The Last Kiss that we all are able to experience and fall so deeply into this story and this world together once again. In terms of the micro, the actual show, the story, the plot, you know, I'm excited about House of the Dragon. Fire and Blood is a a fascinating read. Uh, Volume one, to be clear. Waiting on volume two still, George. What's up, man? Waiting waiting for a book? What's up with that, George? It's the shocking stuff. (laughs) No, color me stunned. Volume one of Fire and Blood runs from... Aegon's conquest through the reign of Aegon the Third, which means, of course, and we would be remiss if we did not mention this, Jason. It covers the reign of a patron saint of binge mode, Anus oh First. Anus, <laughs> I love Anus. You love. You're always talking about how you love Anus. I love, love Anus. Anus, the second Targaryen king, number two, the Deuce, Anus Targaryen. Uh, oh god always good always good (laughs) never gets old eight is targaryen first of his name second of his whole (laughs) remarkable oh god how much time house the dragon spends on anus or any other targaryen ruler is unclear there's a lot about the show that we we don't know yet so we we say that up front what do we? Th- what's the title of the anus introduction episode? Oh, the boy. king, of the, a bowl of brown. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Um, 
I think you you consider the annals of anus and count on a lot of the, the, the public of- out there not properly knowing how to pronounce annals. It's a great question. I guess that that gets us to the. P- point of how I actually no you 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 hit it on the first try the annals of anus is it <laughs> that is it thanks buddy that's it folks <laughs> oh god great stuff george is just the best really is really credit to you stuff. george yes so the official announcement of the show like if you go on hbo's press release announcing this show when you look at it. It says that it's set 300 years before the events of Game of Thrones because, of course, that's the timeline of where Fire and Blood, again, the tome on which this television show is going to be based, that's where that timeline begins. I think what's unclear is whether this spinoff is going to blaze through those 300 years of Targaryen history, whether we're going to spend a lot of time at the beginning of that and get a fully realized version of Aegon's conquest. Are we going to start there and then accelerate and spend most of our time focusing on the dance of the dragons? Will one of these events in Targaryen history be the primary focus and then leave others like Blackfire rebellions for Mm -hmm. future shows? Or will this one show house all of the history of the Targaryen dynasty in Westeros from Aegon's conquest through to the Mad King. I think that's an unknown at this point, but I'm kind of excited for the answer either way, because if all of those things get the treatment in the show, I, I think it was our beloved colleague, Riley McAtee, who, who said that, that it could basically be the, the, the Westerosi version of the crown where you focus on a ruling family and you have these massive time jumps where you hit on these key events, but also move around quite freely. Or, you know, maybe it is ultimately centered heavily on one we have learned in media reports, his own Twitter, that the the Brian Cogman spinoff was supposed to be Dance of the Dragons. Yes. Whether the show is replacing that and focusing on it entirely or overlaps with it in some ways, I think, unclear. Now, George himself has given a clue that indicates the dance will be the primary focus, saying in a not a blog post, quote, if you'd like to know a bit more of what the show will be about, well... I can't actually spill those beans. Classic George. But you might want to pick up a copy of two anthologies I did with Gardner Dojois, Dangerous Women and Rogues. And then the quote goes on and he starts to talk about fire and blood. So Dangerous Women includes the novella The Princess and the Queen, which is about the dance. And Rogues includes The Rogue Prince about King of the I and Prince Damon. So definitely a heavy dance clue there from George. Regardless, here are some things we do know. George is co-creating it with Ryan Condal. Condal's the writer. Miguel Supachnik is a co-showrunner and director. I am of two minds on that front because okay. on the one hand, Supachnik is responsible for some of my absolute favorite episodes of Game yes. of Thrones ever, including my not only favorite episode of Game of Thrones, but favorite episode of television, period. The Winds of Winter. Winds of Winter. He also directed Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards. Like, he has some bangers on his Game of Thrones resume. The flip side is, he also directed The Bells, I think unambiguously one of the worst episodes in the history of Game of Thrones. And yes. how much of that falls at his feet versus the creative vision of the show at that point overall is, you yeah. know, obviously hard to parse and hard to say. I think that the some of his comments and interviews and his dialogue around the choices in that episode are... Harder I mean, to, I, I, harder to grapple with. 
my feeling on that and any kind of comments by people involved directly in the making of this show is like, you got to carry the water. Yeah. You know what you I stand mean? Behind like, the product. Yeah, like, sure. You got to stand behind the product no matter what. It's like, listen, Game of Thrones season eight disappointed. A lot of people hurt. A lot of people was not good. A lot of people worked very, 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 very hard on it. Wanted yes. it to be good. And great you know, point. Bled and bled and sweated and worked long hours in tough conditions to to give it a chance to be good. And I think whatever project you were working on, whether it's fucking Game of Thrones or Cats, <laughs> if it flops, you have to get out there and be like, I loved it. Yes. I worked. I think I stand by every decision because like that's just you have to respect the work that people put in. I take everything. I take every comment with a grain of salt. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. You have to carry that water. You just have to. I think that's that's completely right. And we mentioned the last watch a minute ago. Like, that was one of the most interesting and rewarding parts of of watching that was reminding yourself of that very fact. The people who devoted their not only their jobs, but their Worked lives. Very, very, very hard. Yeah. To making this come to life. I think it's 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 less about that and more like what the bells represented in terms of the spectacle over character, I think, equation. Yeah. And what Agreed. that might mean for the vision of this new project. So it's more about that. I think that the bells looked fucking incredible. It was one of the most mesmerizing things I'd ever seen on my television. So that's how I feel about House of the Dragon. Anything you want to add about the adaptation? I, I would say, first, uh, as a prediction, I think that it's going to be centered on the events of the Dance of the Dragons, the Targaryen Civil War between Aegon and Rhaenyra. 129 to 131 AC on the timeline. In which Westeros pretty authoritatively rejected the rule of a, of a queen and the devastation that wrought. I think we focus on that and I think there's going to be flashbacks, which would be kind of like a non-Game of Thrones feel. You know, famously, it took quite a while for us to get a flashback in Game of Thrones. But I think we'll I think we see flashbacks in, in the show. And then lastly, just kind of pivot off your point. I hope that it's not just good. There's a lot of good television out there. Good to great even. And I think with the talent they have in the writer's room and behind the camera, I think it has a great chance to be good. More than that, I hope that it recaptures the magic. That's the thing that it's, you know, you can't be said enough about Game of Thrones. It's not just that it was a good show or even a great show. So, you know, great shows don't come around often, but they happen and they happen, you know, The Sopranos, Lost, etc. There was a magic to Game of Thrones when it was at its peak where you just Absolutely. couldn't miss it. And you cared so much about what was happening to these characters. That's hard totally. to generate. You so hope rare. that you get that, but you can't get that because you tried. It's some alchemical mix that either happens or it doesn't. And I hope they bottle it again. And I hope they manage to get that. And I hope they manage to win people back because I think that's what the fandom needs is some some little drop of that magic again. I could not possibly agree more. I feel inspired just hearing you say that. And that's the other thing. Recapturing not only the magic of the experience, but the actual magic inside of the story. That's my other hope is embracing the fantasy element of this world once again. Now, I think that quite clearly, 
one of the draws from the creator's perspective of a show and a, a new universe of storytelling possibility centered on the Targaryen dynasty is that it allows the show to do politics again, which Game of Thrones at its best did masterfully well. Masterfully. There are also going to be a shitload of dragons in this show. The dragons are there, folks. <laughs> yeah. Whether we start... 300 years ago and stay there or zip to the dance, the dragons are going to be an elemental part of the story. And that means the magic and the fantasy is going to be an elemental part of the story. And I hope that that is embraced and honored at its core for what that represents in a story that means this much to people. I worry a little bit that the fact that the Long Night show that was not called The Long Night, despite numerous not a blog posts about it being called The Long Night... (laughs) Did not happen. George never changed, George. (laughs) Oh, George. That was honestly one of the, that was such an awkward number of weeks. (laughs) Really needlessly rough for everyone involved. But what was that going to be about? You know, the original Long Night, Children of the Forest, the White Walkers, Direwolves, so many of the fantastical elements moved away from that. Not saying that that's why. I mean, numerous factors are at play when a network makes a decision like that. But I desperately, desperately hope that there's a recognition of the fact that one of the things that people loved so much about this story is that when you are ported into a universe where you can mount a dragon and fly into the sky... It's not just about watching a CGI beast flap its wings in front of you. It's about really feeling truly in your heart and soul that you can soar through your own life in that way too. And finding a way back into the heart of that recognition is, I think, elemental and paramount. You know, I think that's a great point. I think certainly the show quite consciously made the decision to focus on politics over fantasy and to pivot, in fact, away from fantasy elements. And I think in that sense, there's a real opportunity here for this spinoff to kind of crack the code of balancing politics and fantasy elements. Those two things can absolutely coexist. Yes. Next. Number four. Natalie Cohen, we got another topical one here. Natalie Cohen asks, which Game of Thrones character would be the best contestant on Survivor? This is a great one because I think the initial instinct is to think, oh, almost you can make a case for almost all of them. And then as soon as you start to assess the finer points, you eliminate almost all of them. (laughs) Who did you end up going with? I'm going to go number one, top of my list, Sansa. Great one. She's got everything. She's got, first of all, social game is a razor. She understands and was taught by the best what people want to hear and the impact of giving people morsels of information that lead them in a direction. I think she'd want be one of the great manipulators, one of the great communicators, and obviously like a just a master strategist. She'd be incredible. What couldn't she do? She would just be able to quietly and behind the scenes, move pieces around without being the focus. She'd be one of these players that would quietly dominate a game and never have a vote cast against her because everybody just kind of like naturally either likes her or doesn't consider her to be the thread in the room. I just think she'd be amazing. And, I, and, and you know, with the story arc that she has, she's able to empathize with different 
types of characters from different walks of life. And I think she'd be um, uh, able to communicate with those people in really singular ways. You know, I wanted to say Arya as well. I think she's obviously a physical threat, a challenge beast. Challenge beast. <laughs> a ch- an absolute challenge beast. And, you know, obviously able to, we wouldn't let her use her faceless man <laughs> trick bag in this case. I mean, who knows what advantages you can find on any given season, though, you know? <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> But I think in the end, like a little too hot-headed, a little too um, fly off the handle, a little too pointed and a little too quick to go to the dagger. And that's why I'd go to Sansa. Um, I, like I also thought about Tywin a little bit, but to me, like the, the, and this is not to be ageist and no shots, but it never works with the old guy on Survivor. <laughs> it just doesn't, you know, you look back on the history of it and it's like Philip, a little bit older, Keith. God bless him, Keith. Oh, man. You know, I love Keith. I actually, that's interesting. When I was considering Tywin, I eliminated him not because of his age, but because he feels like he'd be the classic, you keep the meat shield around until you eliminate the meat shield, not (laughs) because he's the challenge beast, but because he'd be, I think, so clearly identifiable to everybody as the one running things. Now, of course, his whole game is to not be identifiable as the person running things to quietly wait in the shadows and write the letters and pull the strings and let the Roose Boltons and Walter Freys and Gregor Clegane's of the world do his dirty work for him. Does somebody want to get wood or should I get the wood? <laughs> you can't just lay about camp all day. Oh God. I will say talking like a bunch of hens. <laughs> the prospect of after every single reward or immunity challenge <laughs> that Tywin's tribe won him just shouting, the challenge is over. We have won. Is we have won. Really remarkable to think about. So I considered Arya as well. And I think Arya has a real shot, even though I agree with everything you said. However, I think that she would be so adept at challenges. I mean, again, can't say it enough. Arya killed the Night King. Like, she's, she's a, a ninja. She's man. literally a ninja. Yeah, she she's a gymnast ninja. She can go on a record-breaking individual immunity run. And I think that would be her ticket to winning, would be just ensuring that nobody could ever vote her out. And then sheer intimidation at Final Tribal. I mean, imagine if they do one of those blindfolded maze challenges and she just goes (laughs) through it without... (laughs) Without, like, any help from the person yelling down. Just imagining that the waif is behind her for fun. I was legitimately stone blind for a number of weeks. This is not a problem. I I think she'd have a real chance. I also really, really, really strongly considered Sansa. And she is is my second pick for all the reasons you said. I think you you made a, a perfect case. She's really the poster character for outlasting. Grew so increasingly adept throughout her arc, throughout the show, at outplaying, at outwitting, at understanding the game. You know, think about a moment like Littlefinger's execution in season seven and her parroting back his lines to him, his quote-unquote lessons. You know, there's no justice in the world, not unless we make it. Right as she's about to have Arya slit his throat, you don't think she's going to fucking dunk on your resume at Final Tribal when she's explaining why she's really the one in command, not you, I think she would crush it. The only person who I I found myself thinking might have a better chance than Sansa 
was Tyrion. Now, this is mostly a first four seasons Tyrion in his prime argument. Peak Tyrion before he really lost it and went off the rails. Yeah. A strategist, a motivator, a maneuverer, somebody who is a survivor in every sense of the word, always finds a way, no matter how dire the circumstances, to stay afloat. And then I found myself thinking about the end of Game of Thrones, as is our task today. And I thought, as appalling as the dragon pit sequence was to me and will forever be to me, it is ultimately the crowning jewel in Tyrion's I would win Survivor case. Because my dude established a new realm and crowned a new ruler while he was literally in manacles. My guy is chained, changing the future of Westeros. You're not going to beat that at Final Tribal. See, to me, that is like the Eric speech that that got Natalie the win over Russell. (laughs) To me, Tyrion's destiny on Survivor is to go, is to get into jury and make the speech that swings final survivor to the most unexpected contestant. You're completely right. I retract the prior point. (laughs) You've convinced me in the span of eight (laughs) seconds, just as Tyrion convinced the most powerful (laughs) lords and ladies of Westeros to go with Bran the Broken. You're right. I hope people get that reference. And if you don't, (laughs) just Google Eric a Samoa tribal speech because it is like, it's actually moving. Like, it's really good. Here's the thing about Survivor. It's great. Number five, Chris Roselle. Which two Game of Thrones characters, this is a great question, who never once shared screen time together would you have most liked to have seen interact? What a phenomenal question. It's a beautiful question. So many possibilities. It made me sad to consider them. I found myself consumed with a desperate yearning for things that will never be. All of my picks, because I forced myself to limit it to three, showing some restraint. Also, Steve just told us we're over time already. (laughs) (laughs) All of my pairings are Danny pairings, which I was a little surprised about as I was sketching out these answers, but I just found myself longing for these interactions with Danny and characters she never got to play out scenes with on screen despite so much shared history. So they are... Tywin and Danny. I mean, I'll just run through this very quickly, but obviously the the history with her father. Yeah. The Siege of King's Landing, Tywin's betrayal of the Mad King, all of the ensuing events, Tywin sanctioning Robert's rule, Robert's pursuit of Danny and Viserys throughout Essos. The, I think, undeniable respect that Tywin would have for Danny while interacting with her, even though he would know. I respect not even know. that. <laughs> Oh, God. Not even though he would know, because he would know that she was a real true threat, somebody to be reckoned with, all of the implications that it would have for present-day Westeros if she had made it overseas before he had been killed. Now, of course, then all of the Tyrion-specific ramifications would be different because Tyrion went to Essos and found Danny after killing his father, but it's a thought experiment. Also, Ned and Danny. The... Mm. History with Ned completely altering the foundation of his life and his family to protect 
an innocent child, Aegon Targaryen, Jon Snow, the way that he felt about how truly wrong it was of Robert to try to harm Danny, how it corrupted his very sense of who he thought Robert was, getting to see Danny and Ned, who for so many reasons should have been enemies, but I think would have really been drawn to each other, interact would have been a, a precious gift. And then, and I think this one is on both of our lists. Yeah, this is this is Mr. Raymond and Danny. Heartbreaking. Just to think about it is really oh my it's God. almost I feel my throat tightening just thinking about it. Yeah, it's really it's really <sighs> emotional to think about this one. His I kin. think about that in, in that unbelievable scene where he talks about how lonely she must be. Oh my on god. On the other side of the world. And how, and and talking about his own experience when he was first sent to the wall and not able to help, not able to be there for his family in their time of most dire need. Yes. That would be an amazing oh, reunion. Just unbelievable. The choices that you make, the consequences of those choices for you and other people. I think that Eamon was always quietly one of the most potent and effective characters at getting us and other characters around him, namely John, of course, to think about that and seeing him and Danny interact would have just been absolutely spellbinding. You know, a, a thing I've I've thought about often when thinking about him is, you know, obviously was the oldest man in Westeros. I think a lot of the reason for his ability to hang on was the hope that he would meet his kin one day, you know, just yes. to hang around long enough that maybe he would get to... Uh, be in the same place as her. Think about his final fever egg, words as he was dying. Egg. egg, egg, you know, calling out his family's name. It's just gutting. It's absolutely gutting. I didn't write this down, but I thought of it as you were talking about Tywin. I think Tywin and John, I think, would be really magical. If you think about legacy, right? Tywin yeah, wanted that sure. legacy. He wanted someone to carry on that legacy. And his family was a real disappointment to him in that mm -hmm. regard. Not understanding the weight on their shoulders and the importance of the name and the importance of the sigil and the importance of upholding the respect that had been built up over the years. And that he had really been uh, instrumental in rehabilitating after the kind of excesses and, and the weakness of his father. I think he would look at John and go, man, I wish that kid was my son. Look at the way... He is out there upholding the good name of a house that won't even have him for its own. I wish Jon Snow was my son. I think he would look at Jon and say that. Wow. You're so right. I mean, he was so disappointed in his own children. In fact, that yeah. it, it blinded him. It, it masked the reality of who they were to him. His refusal to accept what was transpiring between unfortunate and Cersei tragic. and Jamie, even though word of it had spread across the realm to the point where it compromised the integrity of the rule. Yes. And then you think about, you know, who are two of the characters that we associate most closely, always in the books or the show? Arya and John. Arya was, of course, impersonating his cupbearer at Harrenhal in season two, but those are still to this day some of the most electric scenes in the history of Absolutely. Game of Thrones. And it's for what you're identifying, Ugh. that bone-deep connection where you look at someone else and understand 
that they can see the world the way you do. The, the, the way that Tywin explained the idea of legacy to Arya, do you know what legacy means? It's what you pass down to your children and your children's children. It what rema- It's what remains of you when you're gone. And then you contrast that to a scene like his legendary stag skinning sequence his introduction to the show with jamie what an introduction in season one that was meant to be a pep talk but it was also a lecture it was all through the guise of disappointment and repressed potential grow up seize the opportunity become the man you were meant to be every the the undercurrent the subtext of everything he said to Arya was just about recognizing the ability to understand what was possible. And you're right. That's what he would have seen in John as well. That's a great one. He would look at John and say, here is a person who would lay down and die for House Stark. And he's not even a Stark. Gladly. Gladly. Gladly do it. I wish he was my son. Um, and then finally, just like, let's have some fun. Bron and Dario. Let's get these two together. Dude, there is not enough penicillin in the world. <laughs> A great many women, I imagine. <laughs> Fundamental divide in terms of, I mean, the two are the most sexually potent and adventurous men in the story. Jesus. But I, I don't think that Bronn and, and Dario see eye to eye on the brothel experience and ultimately shelling out for it. So how do you see them conducting their affairs together? How do you see them spending their time? Well, I think that's what would make these scenes fascinating, right? This kind of philosophical debate that would occur between these two men. I love it. What a fun time could be had by them. You know who Dario's kindred spirit really actually is? Pod. (laughs) I think he would have such admiration for sex god Pod. Pod the Rod. They talk about the Miranese knot for fucking weeks. Oh my gosh. So you tied the knot, did you? Oh yeah. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Number six, Max asks, okay, maybe more broad than Game of Thrones, but using Game of Thrones, Star Wars, Harry Potter, and Lord of the Rings as examples, is the conclusion ultimately that a successful screen adaption rests on having source material totally concluded by the original author or creator in advance of the adaptation. What's What's your take on this? I think authoritatively, no. I agree. I don't think that that matters. I like, look, does it help to have a definite roadmap and a definite ending and a definite direction to your story? Of course. There's no question that that makes that lowers the degree of difficulty in any adaption. But I think, as for instance, the MCU has shown, if you have creators that just get what the essence of these characters are, then that's what is necessary. And I think we agree on that. That's that's really what it's about because then every decision flows from that. The characters tell you where the story goes. Yeah, I'm I'm with you completely. It's it's about understanding the heart of who the characters are. It's about understanding the proper pace at which you should watch those characters live their lives and travel their paths and and journey through their arcs. And Game of Thrones itself is actually Still an example of that, despite the ending. You know, we mentioned Winds of Winter already. That's our that's my favorite episode. It's one of your favorite episodes. And that that has not been written yet. That was a, a moment when I think we believed most fully in what the show and the showrunners were capable of doing. And I would even look at if we want a, a season eight example, you know, I think we agree on this too. The the episode that Brian Cogman wrote 
in season eight, Night at, the Night second of the episode, Night of the Seven Kingdoms, is a breathtakingly beautiful love letter to those characters. And it's legitimately an all-time Game of Thrones episode. It's phenomenal. And it is phenomenal because it understands who those people are, why we care about them, and what spending time with them is is supposed to mean. You know, look at Harry yeah. Potter. First four books were out by 2000. The, the Stone movie came out in 2001. But then the books are being finished as the movies are being made. Obviously, by the time they're making, by the time Harry and Hermione are dancing in the tent, Jason, in Deathly Hallows yes, part, yes, part yes, one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Deathly Hallows, the book, is out and has been out. But those were being written and filmed across different timelines in tandem. You mentioned Rebels and Clone Wars, and we talked about Mandalorian earlier. Star Wars is constantly giving us news stories in comic book form, television form, animated form, uh, live action that are the product of people like Dave Filoni and so many others, Jon Favreau, understanding the heart of the galaxy and why people are drawn to that story. So... You don't need the source material, certainly, if you have it, and it's excellent. It helps. You just need to understand what the story is about and how to tell it. Agree completely. Number seven, Valeria Montoya. Would you rather George R. R. Martin publish the last two books, but only be able to watch season eight for the rest of time, or never have a finished novel, but still have seasons one to six? This is easy. Okay, go ahead. You answer it first. Easy clap, folks. (laughs) Finish the fucking books, man. Not only because I am just so deeply committed to that story in a real emotional and intellectual sense. I love the world. I love everything about the world. I love spending time in the world. I desperately want to know what happens next. The fact that John has been laying in the snow in the courtyard at (laughs) Castle Black for 10 years pains me. Awful. The fact that John Connington is just out here scratching his arm uh, the gray for 10 years <laughs> pains me. I got to know what happens next. And then the fact that stepping back a little in, in, a, in a meta sense, in a real world flesh and blood sense, what mm-hmm. it would mean for George, the man, Absolutely. the author, the creator to finish his work. I get emotional thinking about it. Like what it would mean for him as a person who's created this world to see it through. But we actually can't imagine how meaningful that would be to him. For him to finish that, it's very simple for me. What about you? The achievement of a lifetime, truly. I agree. That's my pick as well. And what you said is right. And I agree for all the reasons you said. When we were talking about this with Cram, he said, this is so easy. It's the same as asking, would you rather only have access to replays of sports games you've already watched or new games and no replays, no highlights. And weirdly, that was <laughs> that was the thing that actually gave me just a moment's pause here. So while I agree with you and I'm making the same pick, I will at least make the case for going the other way with it. And it is that it would actually be devastating to never get to see a replay of a sporting event that meant sure. a lot to me again, right? Sure. Because the things that you have in your life that mean that much to you and that you cherish are a part of your life forever. And the, yeah. the, the ability to return to those things is something that I hold sacred and dear. Like, we talk about this a lot, right? 
oh, is it time to read a new book or should we read A Song of Ice and Fire or Harry Potter for the 7,000th time? (laughs) And why do we so often return to those stories? Because they bring us joy. And the first six seasons of Game of Thrones changed my life. And it would kill me to never get to see them again. It would kill me. Now, of course, I need George to finish these books. I need his ending. I need to know what goes down in wins and getting and 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 Dream of Spring and getting the guarantee that we we would be able to experience that is not something that I think anybody who cares about the story this deeply would would be able to pass on. Truly, there are also things in season eight. Like the question is presented as though watching season eight is a, a punishment, right? That's the trade-off in the would you rather. There are right. things in season eight that I would love getting to see time and time again. Oh, the I moment agree. when John turns around and sees Arya for the first time, Jamie knighting Brienne, Podrick singing Jenny's song, the little glance that passes between Sansa and Theon. I mean, there would be things there to hold on to as well. The pick is the pick, but it would be hard. It would be hard to not be able to watch seasons one through six of Game of Thrones again. And I just want to say that out loud because those seasons of television yes. mean a great, great, great deal to us. Never being able to see Winds of Winter again, the smash cut from baby John's Oof. wrinkly face. Legitimately to like the white wolf about to be crowned. Like if I could never watch that again, I don't know what I would do. The electricity that went through my body in that moment. Unrivaled. To this day, still. Yeah. I, I watched it uh, just recently. It's and, incredible. And was not just slack-jawed at the power of the smash cut and that emotion, but also just appalled at the shamelessness of Robert Glover <laughs> to say, we will stand behind House Stark oh, as we have for a thousand years, and then to legitimately not show up at Winterfell for the Great Bob. <laughs> Unbelievable balls on this Shame on night. you. Robert, get the fuck out of here, Robert Glover, and take your shitty castle with you. I I knew I was just gonna say, I know you're about to dunk on his shit castle. Deepwood sucks. <laughs> the fact that it's still made of wood oh after God. all these hundreds of years, what are we doing? Quarry some stone and fix that thing. It's rotting. It's, it's a terrible. bad castle. I will say one thing it has over last hearth is that Nidumba was never nailed to the wall. Nidumba. <laughs> Then screamed his way back into a hideous impersonation of life. Okay, number eight. Katie Eckel asks, without changing what we got in season eight, if you could expand any storyline or scene, what would it be? Mine would be what happened after Danny died. I still can't get over the fact that John wasn't murdered on sight. Okay, so we're not making a plot change. We're just saying... What one thing would you want to see more of and basically be able to better understand? I had a, a, a clear pick here. What about you? I agree with your, I agree okay. with your pick 1 million percent. Let's because dive fucking this in. This is, w- because is this thing that we were about to say not what the story was about? <laughs> I know. This is I, what it was about. I know I said earlier we were going to try to be positive today, but when you bring up shit like this, it's really hard. While there are a ton of contenders, for this honor or dishonor, however you want to think about it. I think the one that most of all we cannot shake is that we didn't get to see in full John telling Arya and Sansa about his parentage in season eight, episode four, The Last of the Starks. I rewatched that scene just before we recorded and I felt my heart 
was going to explode with rage, Jason. Just cutting that off so we didn't get to see it at all. An outrage. Unbelievable. A betrayal of something fundamental about the tale. Having John tell Bran to be the one to tell them. Just didn't, come on. Ludicrous. The consequences of that are massive because we see what unfolds with Sansa and the decision that she makes in our conversation with Tyrion and what she chooses to share. Who John is, the question not only of Lyanna and Rhaegar's past, their love, the fact that John is the product of their desire to be together, their secret marriage, Prince Raga's annulment, <laughs> Raga, not just the plot mechanics, though, of what that means for John as Aegon Targaryen, legitimate heir to the Iron Throne, what that meant for his dynamic with Danny, what that meant for his question, the inner question in his soul of whether he wanted it. I'm not sure if you've heard, Jason. He didn't want it. <laughs> the most thematically resonant questions in the story connected to that. Because why does it matter what your family name is or who your parents are? We have a million examples across the story. Look at Tyrion and Tywin on and on the list goes. It doesn't. It's the family you choose and the people he would have been telling that to. Arya and Sansa, Bran, they were his family no matter who birthed him and what he was supposed to be called once upon a time. It's about the choices you make. It's about who you choose to love and share your life with and what you want to be in somebody else's eyes. We were cheated not only out of Arya and Sansa hearing that and processing it and accepting it, but out of really understanding, I think, more than we would have at any other conversation, how John felt about it based on how he would have explained it to them. I thank you so much for saying that. Yes. Yeah. <gasps> Again, this is fundamentally what the story was about. Oh, and, I, and I mean that in, in a micro and a macro sense about John's identity and parentage as the central mystery of this story that drove all the events and all the plot. And thematically, as you said, about it being about the family you choose and the impact of that. Listen, a lot of how we feel about a story is given to us by the reactions of the characters, right? Yes, we know that R plus L equals J, and then we know he knows that, we know they know that. But we need, we want and we need to understand their emotional reaction to it, to be able to understand our emotional reaction to it. That's fundamental. That's core of storytelling. That's what we want. We want to know that. We want to know how they feel about it. We want to know how they react to it. All the intricacies and all the emotions and all the complexity, we need that in order to know how we feel about it. There's, there's something missing in our emotional reaction to the story because we didn't get that. It sucks. It really does. I mean, I don't I don't want to minimize the actual plot mechanics of what the John Parentage reveal meant for John and Danny and the quest for the Iron Throne. Of course. But the fact that Danny's reaction to the news, how threatened she felt, what that meant for her character arc ultimately, was the driving force behind that as opposed to what it meant for the idea idea of being a Stark. You're talking about a boy who was raised as the bastard of Winterfell. Now, he loved his father, loved Arya, loved Bran, but was despised by Catelyn, grew up feeling so lost and alone and out of place that he would 
dream. He would have nightmares about the crypts of Winterfell. What are the crypts of Winterfell? The, the halls of Stark history, where the true Starks, where his mother, ultimately Lyanna, are entombed. The old kings of winter would haunt him in his dreams and tell him he didn't belong. It was a defining premise of his life. Part of his soul-deep bond with Ghost was that Ghost was different. He was the one cast out in the litter, the one who never fit in, who didn't belong. And that John and Ghost were the two who understood that about each other and the comfort that John found in his bond and relationship with Ghost because there was another another person, and I, you can make fun of me if you want for calling Ghost a person, but another person in his life. It, it was an aspect of him in a fully fleshed out Yes, who could feel that and know what it was like to go through life feeling that. And we were cheated out of seeing the moment where he had to contend with that. Some of the people who at times made him feel that way in Sansa's case and hearing them process their relationship was one of the exciting parts about the beginning of season seven. It was just such a, it, it could have been an entire episode and, and to, to not get it at all was just such a miss. Right. And now maybe just to briefly do the devil's advocate, maybe that was the thinking, you know, like we actually can explore this in the way that we would need to. Is it worse to do a two minute scene of them reacting to this and then having to move on with all the things that we need to to move on to? Or is it better to just kind of like blow past it? You know, maybe that entered their thought process. All I know is it feels like a hole in my emotional understanding of this story to not have that, to really not understand what happened in that moment when he tells them and how they would respond. It's tough. Yeah. I mean, hear, <laughs> hearing you describe it that way, you know, what's what's worse to, to not do it at all or, or maybe do a hurried and poor version of it. It makes me think of the fallout of Jamie choosing to leave Brienne and how the I, we 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 spent so much time talking about this during the season eight binge mode Game of Thrones run, but how so much of that and and so much of what unfolded with Danny's ultimate fall and the Shakespearean tragedy at play there was less about the actual choices that were made in the story and more about what we were made to made to or allowed to understand about how the characters were thinking and why they were acting and behaving in the way that, we, that, that they were. And not only how we got to understand that, but how the people around them in the story got to understand that or didn't. And I would say that, like, to answer your question of whether it's worse to do a, a bad job of it or not do it at all, I guess you have now, you have examples in, in, in either respect there, but... I think it's all of a piece and emblematic of what the ultimate hindrance to true success in the back half, especially of the final season was, which is that that is never a question that they had to ask earlier in the show's run, yeah. ever. You know, it was, it was a show where you could spend seasons, seasons moving an inch. And that, was not the hurdle that you had to, it wasn't the, wasn't the barrier uh, to, to entry for your engagement as a viewer. It was like specifically the proposition that you were going to feel every moment that, that when the weather changed, you were going to feel like the sweet summer child who had heard every story from old Nan about what it meant when the, the, the white winds came. And I just think that that specifically is what was lost. I could give 500 other examples here for the, the sake of time. We we probably shouldn't. I mean, I, I would be remiss yeah, if I didn't mention not agree more. getting a full 
John goes farewell, even though they're ultimately reunited at the at the end. Not getting that in season in episode four is something that I will sincerely never recover from. I I, I mean that I will never <laughs> ever recover from it ever. You know, I think again of that that quote from the first book of Game of Thrones after. Lord Commander gives John Longclaw and Longclaw is showing Longclaw to ghosts and thinking about ghosts and their bond and who they both are. And he's reflecting to himself he was about when he found him. And the, the quote is, they had been riding off with the other pups, but John had heard a noise and turned back and there he was, white fur, almost invisible against the drifts. He was all alone, he thought, apart from the others in the litter. He was different, so they drove him out. You know, those, those scenes that we're talking about have that in common that central aspect of how John sees himself and thinks about his own life and the relationships that he's forged. And I just really, really, really wish we'd gotten to see him grapple with that. Any other ones you want to mention here? The the fireside chat between Brandon Tyrion in episode two is probably a good one. That's a good one. But honestly, when thinking about it, there's so much structurally that's missing from Bran's arc that I don't think that one scene would have fixed it at all. Yeah, would it, would I have loved to have it and yeah. understand it? Yes. But frankly, this is a character that disappears from the show for an entire <laughs> season. <laughs> and then becomes king. So, right. so no, to right. say yeah. that, oh, we should have got this one scene. <laughs> yes, we should have got it. But th- there's problems before this that should have been. You're right. Okay. Number nine, Alex Rouse. Mm. Which city in Westeros would quarantine the best and which would quarantine the worst? I just want to say in general, I don't think anyone in Westeros is going to do a super strong job it's of gonna adhering be, to... Yeah, it's going to be very tough. Hygiene <laughs> is bad. They don't understand washing hands. They probably don't uh, bathe more than twice a year. It's God. just the viruses there are going to spread like wildfire. One visit, one visit to Molestown Whore <laughs> and you are... Oh, God. In droplets. Oh, God. Still, in the spirit of the exercise, I will go with, for my pick for the best, I will go with the Reach. Second largest kingdom, back in the Seven Kingdom days after the North. Now, a a demerit here is a lot of people, right? Not ideal. But counterpoint to that is that there's also a lot of space, a lot of room, a lot of foliage to look at for your scenic walks, keep you engaged, keep your mind stimulated for your strolls through the rows of Highgarden without risk of close contact with other people. You know, it's much harder <laughs> to, yeah. to stretch your legs if you're in the north, if you're opting to the space of the north, because it's fucking cold there and nobody wants to be outside. Another thing about the Reach, ample bounty of accessible foodstuffs. You know, this is important to think about when you're quarantining. Can you find sustenance? And in the Reach, you can. And you can do it without risking a lot of contact. Also, a lot of wealth. Who knows how long quarantine's lasting? Helps to be in a rich region. I have to specify that you need to avoid Old Town and the, the city crowds at all costs, but kick it at High Garden. Be happy. Cram's pick here was the Lonely Light, which I thought was a great one. That's a great one. Yeah, because no, no one, one goes No there. one going I, there. <laughs> on the downside, you're out there with those loonies, the far winds, who are just a little bit off. So you, that's really rough. rough. But yeah, again, very few people go out there. For me, I love Lonely Night as well. Although, generally speaking, I think you should stay away from any any place with a big port, right? Mm-mm, right. You know, Old Town is out. Lannisport is out. King's Landing is out. Islands. Listen, you eschewed the North, but I think Bear Island is pretty good. Not a lot of trade. Not a lot of people going there. Really out of the way. 
the irony has to be summertime because obviously in wintertime you just can't be there. But it's all the way at the top of the mountain. Nobody's going there. And if they even try to come there, forget it. You're just not, don't send the basket down. Just don't, don't let them up. Uh, The only thing I worry about there is if something goes wrong, it's hard to get resources. Yeah, but I think it's, you know, like they're stocked up there. The errands know what they've been, they're doing. They've been doing it for a long time. I I trust them in that regard. If there's a run Um, on breast milk and sweet Robin is in need. There will never be a run on on breast milk. Not I don't want to be the mule tasked with getting it to him during a hungry period of quarantine. But finally, I think the one that I settled on, mm-hmm. Great Water Watch. Oh my god! It moves around. <laughs> I love this. Nobody's finding it at all because it moves. You'll never find it. You literally will never find it, and nobody even tries. Now, we don't know, like, is it pestilential? Is, like, there a malaria problem? What about uh, what about the alligators? What about the beasts? Listen, if it's good enough to, for the reeds, it's good enough for me. I'm going to go with Grey Water Watch because, again, Amazing. you'll never find it. You will just never find me there. Typical frog eater pick. <laughs> Let me know how Howland's doing if you find him and tell Mira I miss her. I think we have the same pick for worst, right? I mean, it just has to be King's Landing. Like, it's just not. Listen, it's bad. Highest population density in the kingdoms, just way too crowded. Even in the best of times, already a cesspool of filth, full of vectors of disease. You've got ships coming in from all parts of the realm, from all parts of the world. You've got travelers and tradespeople from all parts of the lands arriving there all the time. It's just, forget it. High risk of riots, the townspeople turning on those who are more fortunate inside of the Red Keep. Riots happen all the time there. It's like a a weekly occurrence over there, the riots. Forget it. Absolutely not. I want zero part of it. (laughs) Next. 10. Anne Yakshaw asks, oh, this is a fun one. What are your favorite non-book and non-series parts of the fandom? These are mine. The Game of Thrones board game is amazing when you win, but super stressful. And I love collecting the Oma Gang beers. What do you got? We, we're, I mean, we're obsessed with merch and collectibles here. We're obsessed. Listen, I'm an, as a, as a true nerd, I love, in any fantasy story, I love maps. So I love just looking Same. at the landscape and, and, and understanding it. But more than anything, listen, I just love the replica stuff. Like I was on a Twitch stream the other day talking about how I would love to have various swords from my favorite fantasy stories. Yeah, man. You know, Sword of Gryffindor, give it to me. Hell yeah. Uh, ice. I want it. Like, give me the cat's paw blade. I actually have it. It's on the wall of my office. Yeah. Give it to me. Longclaw, love it. I just, I love having that stuff around and looking at it and imagining what it would be like in that world to have to wield a weapon like that. It's fun. It's it's I great swords. shit. Swords are great. I have the full-size Longclaw at home, as you know. It is incredibly heavy and really dangerous. It's also so well, fucking cool. I love it. It's it's Listen. Speaking as someone has almost had their throat cut by you with a uh Valerian replica weapon, they are very dangerous. Listen, I gesticulate actively while we're counting down Game of Thrones <laughs> moments. Fucking sue me. Yeah, so Longclaw, the sword, my, one of my top picks as well. It's just, it's really incredible to have your hands on it. It's the same way I feel about that I have Obi-Wan's 
lightsaber. I have a Quidditch broom. It's just so cool. So cool to be able to put your hands on something that makes you really feel like you're right there in the world. You mentioned the maps. I mean, I have a wall hanging map of Westeros. I love the Lands of Ice and Fire collection of maps. That's so fun to pull those out and look at them. As you know, I love a Funko Pop. I have about a bazillion Funko Pop dolls for Thrones and and Harry Potter. I have actually lost count of how many Game of Thrones t-shirts I have. I wonder if I have more Harry Potter or Game of Thrones t-shirts at this point or Star Wars. Star Wars is probably third, but Maybe I'll count them as a quarantine activity soon. That'll be a great way to pass the time. The booze. How about the the Johnny Walker ice and fire set that we both have? Great fucking shit. Ghost and Drogon on those bottles. Beautiful. Love a single malt, Jay. And there are all of those different regional Westerosi whiskeys that came out. That's so cool. The beers that the questioner mentioned, I, I have as well. They're great. They're in my office. I miss my. I miss having that stuff. I haven't seen it in ages. I know that we're not allowed to pick books because it's it was part of the rules of the question, but I will just say, collecting all of the different editions of the books is one of the most fun parts. You know, of course, you've got the originals, special editions, the illustrated editions, the comic versions, the leather-bound collection, getting as many copies of the books as you can. Love that. I have the 20th anniversary edition Game of Thrones, the collector's edition. It's it's fucking gorgeous. I would also add that I've been heavily eyeing the Folio Society um, releases of both Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings. They look gorgeous. sumptuous. Gorgeous. I love I Give me a limited edition, like, illustrated so book of that's one of my favorite books, and I will absolutely just devour it. I love it. I'm with you. And we, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the single best part of the fandom, which is the fandom, the community. Yeah, that's true. We love it. Number 11. PZ asks, what is the storyline you're most looking forward to being resolved in The Winds of Winter? My gosh. I mean, um, okay, we're going to run through a few possibilities here. Rapid fire. These are some of the things that we both are most looking forward to hopefully seeing resolved in Winds of Winter should we ever be blessed enough to have that book in our hands. The exact method of John's resurrection, Jay. Of course, this has to be... I mean, (laughs) you mentioned John's still just sprawled (sighs) out, bleeding out in the fucking castle black filthy snow. The ghost involvement here in the book, potentially the Varamir six skins, one eye, skin changing, life force it poured it into your wolf payoff. Very tantalizing to think about. You know, never forget that the final passage we get with John in dance is this. John fell to his knees. He found the dagger's hilt and wrenched it free. In the cold night air, the wound was smoking. Ghost, he whispered. Pain washed over him. Stick them with the pointy end. When the third dagger took him between the shoulder blades, he gave a grunt and fell face first into the snow. He never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. <laughs> Incredible. How much of what we get in the book will mirror the events of the show, Melisandra, the nature of that resurrection, etc. Can't wait to find out. What's another one? Listen, is it Fagon or is it Aegon? Hell yeah. What's going on there? John Connington, one of the really most exciting plot twists in Dance of Dragons was the rival of this possibly, you know, other Targaryen competitor for the throne. Is it possible 
that this child survived this the sack of King's Landing and was spirited away and now is back again with with and and the fact that John Connington and some of these other uh, exiles from Westeros are, are by his side lends mm-hmm. some credence to this to this claim. I can't wait to know more. I want to know yes. more. I need shots it. to Young Griff. I'm with you. A related one to that. Let's get some Dorn clarity here. Yes, please. Ariane Martell. What is going to happen in Winds with her plot? Doran, his plans to wed his house to the Tarks obviously has to change because Quentin <laughs> didn't fucking died. <laughs> Quentin got burned. Shouts to my <laughs> poor, sweet, sweet Quentin. He tried. Rough way to go. Really tough stuff. Very rough. Ariane going to find Aegon try to suss out the validity of his personage and claim. Just cannot wait for that. How about Victorian and his pursuit of oh Danny and Dragon Binders power? This is almost, man, this is almost like <laughs> bumming me out just thinking about all these like things that I want to know about. Know. Yes, know. it's a great one. How about, okay, how about this? Wayman Manderley, one of the Your absolute boy. St- Stars of a dance of dragons locating, he thinks, Rickon Stark and sending Davos Seaworth on a mission to go bring him back. Bring me back my liege lord. Oh my God. And chills. I will support Stannis Baratheon. Oh my God. Like chills. Does Davos pull it off? Does he go and does he find him? Oof. That is the chapter that for me just absolutely set me on the edge of my seat Incredible. that the double game that Wayman is playing in trying to placate the Lannisters and the and the powers that be right now while also keeping faith with the Starks because of the promise made to them thousands of years ago after they after the Starks took them in when they were exiled from the south uh just like jaw-dropping stuff you mentioned your boy Wayman Manderley and that makes me think of another one because of his plot against the Boltons, thinking about the Boltons, thinking about Ramsey, thinking about the war and the battle against Stannis makes me think of, of course, the pink letter. Who really yes. wrote Ugh. the bastard letter? I Who mean, of course, it? one of the most popular book fan theories is that Ramsey did not, in fact, write the bastard letter. Could it be Stannis? Could it be Mance Raider? Could it be Wyman Manderley? I, I need to know the truth behind the pink letter, both its author and the substance of its words. Oh my God, there's so many. I mean, what what's Lady Stoneheart doing? Where's Stoneheart kicking it? What are what about Jamie and Brienne uh, setting off to find Sansa, you know, Jamie burned Cersei's letter imploring him to come back and, and aid her ahead of her trial. And when Brienne found him and said that she wanted him, but only him to go with her to find Sansa, I need, I need to see those two out on the road together again. Oh my God. Brand's three-eyed raven training, Jay. I mean, yeah. I mean, like that's just you want to talk about <sighs> something crucial to our understanding of the story that, that that we know now. What it's almost like we used the uh, the green site to look into the future and understand what not getting that portion of the story would mean to our <laughs> understanding of the story. Right. So I think, like more than ever, we understand that that is crucial, and we have to understand what happens there. Yes, uh, we could go on and on and on forever. Yeah, we cannot can go wait on and on, for wins. But those are the those are the ones. Last question of the day. Number 12. 
Speaking of brand, a fitting transition here at the end. Rusty Purdue asks, if you're writing Dream of Spring, how do you involve brand in the Battle of Winterfell in a more interesting way than the show, but without being overpowered? Now, Jason, you're something of an authority on taking the reader deeper into Bran's life and mind than they've previously been creating a new point of view character of the Night of Lumber. Craig, <laughs> how would you do this? How would you use the power of the written word to help people understand what the fuck Bran did after saying, I'm going to go now? The, you know, the template is there. Those scenes in Dance of Dragons where he, uh, you know, he's eaten the weirwood paste and he is seeing events from the past. Those passages are going all the way back to mesmerizing, riveting, riveting, riveting <sighs> stuff. My and God. I think you have it right there. You know, like the 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 breadth of history and time is vast. How would you involve Bran without being overpowered? I just think the very fact that he is going to find himself lost in time to a certain extent is going to be the thing that limits him from just being able to be like, oh, well, I'll just control this dragon and now it's and now I've done this and now I'm going to war into the Night King and I've uh, won the battle. No, it's going to, it's, he's going to, listen, what's a fundamental part of the hero's journey? The hero goes on an adventure and returns fundamentally changed. Bran is never going to be the same after what has happened to him under the tree. He's going to be a different person, a different being. Mm -hmm. And I think that difference is going to be what keeps him from being just like this godlike figure. Something about him is going to be lost in the process that he is undergoing. Um, and just read those chapters. They're incredible. They, they're magnetic, truly magnetic stuff. When you think not only about what we experienced through Brand's perspective in those chapters, tapping into the treater net, seeing the history of what had unfolded in the Winterfell Godswood, younger versions of Ned, Lyanna, et cetera, et cetera. But then think of what else you get. You get Theon at Winterfell thinking that he hears Bran whispering his name <sighs> through the weirwood tree, thinking that he sees Bran's face. So then you start to think about that and how George would play with that narrative technique. You know, think about something like the Red Wedding, we know that monumental events in the story are going to be told from more than one perspective, right? You got the Red Wedding from Kat's perspective, and then you got it from Arya's perspective. The battle against the army of the dead will, I think, almost undeniably be the same. We will experience that from John's perspective. We will experience that from Arya's perspective, Sansa's perspective, Danny's perspective, Bran's perspective. And so, the very nature of how the story functions and how the books are crafted will solve the problem, definitionally, because we will be in Bran's mind with him. We will be experiencing what he's experiencing, seeing what he's seeing, sensing what he's sensing. And then we will have moments where we see the, the, the ripples in the fabric of the universe where the other characters feel the effect of that. And those kinds of connections, the ability to stitch together the cloth of this universe and create this vast tapestry of wonder and awe is why A Song of Ice and Fire, unfinished or not, is one of the most miraculous achievements in the history of storytelling. And something oh, like this will be an opportunity to elevate and flex that art form. Not at all a complication. I, I pray that we are fortunate enough 
to get to see George's version of this because it will be oh miraculous. Oh, All right. We could go on forever. God, it's fun to talk about Game of Thrones with you. Same here, buddy. Let's do it again in a I year. I know. Me too. <laughs> I really miss this. Yes. <laughs> All right, friends. You are our listeners now and always. Just as Isaac Lee and Zach Cram are our indispensable producer and researcher now and always. And Steve Allman, who crushed it on this episode and has been helping us out, is the hand of the binge now and always. We hope that you enjoyed this week's episode, that you're staying safe and healthy, of course. We'll be back with you next week. Until then, remember, as Tyrion would tell you, there's nothing in the world more powerful than a good podcast. Okay, so at the last tribal council, there was a very clear division. Jeff, I did not take the rice. It was, t- it was Tyrion that took the rice. I have been I've been helping at camp. I go get the wood. I put the fire. Sansa is laying around. Tywin is too old to help. Boy, those are big words. I'm pulling my weight. I've done everything I can. Sandra's there. She pulls up her hood against the rain to keep the, the, the rain off her memorable shade of hair. And she do nothing. I'm keeping this tribe together. It's me. No one else. It is I, Jeff. That speech right there is great 